story um, as Haman ended up on the gallows that he had built for somebody else. And, uh, but there's actually a little bit more to the story. There's a couple more chapters in that book, and so we want to cover those today. Um, let me do just a little bit of review. Uh, we saw last week that prior to his death, Haman had gotten an edict passed uh, where all the Jewish people in the entire uh, Persian Empire would be killed. Um, Esther chapter 3 and verse 13 uh, it says that letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, and to plunder their goods. Now the king had sealed this edict with his signet ring, which means that this uh, edict that he had passed uh, was something that everybody had to observe. And so my point is that even though Haman is dead, this edict still holds, this edict still exists that will cause a lot of Jewish people to suffer and many to die. And so that's where we pick up the story today, Esther chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 3, 5, and 7 through 8. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Again, we stand week in and week out, not just to respect God's Word, but to recognize, friends, that this is where truth comes from. That it doesn't matter what we hear on TV, doesn't matter what we hear on the radio, doesn't matter what somebody had to share with us at work, that when those opinions go out of line with what God thinks, we go with what God thinks. And so we stand each week to be reminded of that. Esther chapter 8, beginning at verse 3. Here we go. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Verse 5. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. You may be seated. Thank you so much. If my voice starts to crackle, it's because all day yesterday I was calling a swim meet for about six hours, and so uh, it's a little tired today, so I apologize for that. Esther chapter 8, verse 3. Let's kind of dive into these verses together. It says, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And then verse 5 says, And Esther said, O king, if it please the king, and if, it, if I found favor in his sight, let an order be written to revoke that edict that Haman had had passed. Now there's a problem with this, and the problem is that in the Persian Empire they had a very curious uh, practice. They had a very unusual protocol that they observed, and that was that any time, and it says there in the middle of verse 8, it says that an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be revoked. We saw this same thing repeated earlier in the book in Esther chapter 1 and verse 19 where it says, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be 
repealed. And then over in the book of Daniel, part of the book of Daniel toward the end um, occurs during the Persian Empire. The whole business with Daniel and the lion's den says Daniel chapter 6 and verse 14. Then the king of Persia, when he heard these words about how Daniel was going to be killed, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel or to rescue him from the lion's den that he was facing. Verse 15. Then Daniel's enemies, they come to the king and they say to him, Know, O king, that a law of the Medes, that is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. In other words, we can't take that back. Once the king has made a law, put it in place, that law cannot be revoked. And so we must understand here that Esther and the Jewish people find themselves in a difficult position. They find themselves with an edict that comes against them that will cause many of them to suffer and die. Um, and there's nothing that the king can do, do to withdraw this edict that he has passed. But Esther has a plan, and the plan that she has uh, will preserve uh, both the laws of the Medes and the Persian while at the same time rescue the Jewish people. So uh, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, in some of our translations said, Esther chapter 8 and verse 8, he says, Esther, then you write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. So whatever plan you have in place, go ahead and write that down in law, seal it with my ring. So basically he gives her a blank check to do whatever strategy she wants to put in place that will help offset this other edict that Haman had put in place. Verse 9, So the king's scribes were summoned, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. So if you remember Mordecai, uh, Esther's much older cousin who had raised her, he's behind the scenes with Esther, working with her, strategizing with her to come up with a plan that will save the Jewish people. Verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses. You say, well, what was in the dispatches? What was it that Esther and Mordecai had come up with? What was their strategy to try and offset this other edict that Haman had put forward? Well, look at verse 11. Here's the, here's the dispatch. Verse 11, it said that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. So the strategy was to allow the Jewish people to know that this one day is coming, that on this one day, Haman's edict, that any of the Jewish people can be slaughtered. Well, on the same day, the king basically is putting forth an edict that says that the Jewish people can rise up and defend themselves. Last verse, verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jewish the, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies that is they were allowed to defend themselves now I think we need to pause here for just a moment and take note that some folks have read this edict that Mordecai and Esther have put together and that the Bible seems to celebrate and they've said there's something wrong here that the that the edict is telling the Jewish people to kill to annihilate their enemies I mean would God do that well, friends, I don't have any problem at all with this edict that Mordecai and Esther wrote, and the reason being because they're just acting in self-defense. They're not going out offensively to harm people, but rather they're rising up with weapons to defend themselves for anybody that might come and attack them. And so again, I don't see a problem here. Okay, so what happens next? Chapter 9 and verse 1. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar on the Jewish calendar, in the 13th day, when the king's commanded edict were about to be carried out, on that day, when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred, and the Jews gained mastery over them. That is, over the people who were intending to rise up against the Jews. Uh, verse 2, 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, verse 5. And then the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. Skip to verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces, verse 21, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year after year, verse 22, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. So this plan of Haman uh, not only backfired on him, but it didn't didn't work at all. Uh, the Jewish people rose up on that day. Everyone knew that the Jewish people were going to rise up on that day. They defended themselves, and they put down their enemies, those that would seek uh, their destruction. Verse 26, therefore they called these days Purim, verse 27, and the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, that is from generation to generation, to keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. And as many of you know, that to this very day, Jews all across the world celebrate this, this holiday or this, this time called Purim. And it's a reminder of God's deliverance through Esther, through Mordecai, and delivering the Jewish people from the, um, from the evil plot of Haman. All right, well, that's our treatment of this text for today. And so that brings us to the point where we want to ask our most important question, the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate the story. It's an interesting story. It's neat how God delivered the Jewish people and all that worked out for them. But how's that going to help me tomorrow? How's it going to help me get through this coming week? What difference does any of this make to my life? That's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, you know, there's an exciting spiritual principle that is revealed in this ending of the story of Esther. Um, and I want for us to see that. It's found right smack dab in the life of Mordecai, and it holds true as much for us today as it did for Mordecai all those years ago. And what is that principle? The principle is this, that God honors those who honor Him. God honors those who honor Him. Consider Mordecai. His life started off as a pretty ordinary life. He was a foreigner. He was Jewish from Israel. He finds himself living in a foreign land. He was, the, he was a commoner, a, a bachelor, living his own life, minding his own business. He was Jewish. He was a follower of Jehovah's God. He knew about the Ten Commandments. He knew about God's ethics and his expectations and the religious holidays and festivals that he celebrated and practiced. Um, and he lived with a desire to please God. And then his uncle and his aunt passed away, and he ends up with this young girl that he ends up having to raise, and he adopted her and raised her as unto the Lord. But in all in all, I think that we have to say fairly that Mordecai's life started off as nothing special. He was just an ordinary guy who was walking through life. However, I want for you to see how Mordecai's life ended. And this is where things get really interesting, and it points to our principle. Esther chapter 8, and verse 15. Take a look at that with me. It says, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king. So this is in the aftermath of Haman's death. He went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown upon his head and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced about Mordecai. And then if you skip forward to Esther chapter 9 and verse 4, it says again, Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. And finally, chapter 10 and verse 3, last verse of the entire book, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, or to King Xerxes, 
You see what the Bible's saying here? That not only was Mordecai elevated and celebrated, but he was put in the position that Haman occupied before. Mordecai became the prime minister. That is second in command. Prime minister's running things. The second in command to the king, only to the king himself of the, of the empire, the greatest empire in all the world at that, at that point. Uh, Mordecai was promoted. And it says that he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. That's amazing. That's amazing that a guy who grew up pretty ordinary was out of step with, I mean, he wasn't even Persian. Think about that. Mordecai was not even a national, and yet he becomes the prime minister of this nation. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a warrior. He wasn't incredibly wealthy so that he could buy his way into this great position. Um, he was a Jew. He was out of step with the customs and the laws of the Persian people. And yet, despite all human odds, Mordecai becomes the prime minister of this great nation of Persia. Now, I got to say that all of this raises two questions. And the first of those questions is, how did this happen? I mean, how does a guy who is a foreigner become the prime minister of this great empire, uh, despite all the things that didn't line up in his life for him to take that role. And yet he becomes that, the prime minister anyway. Well, the Bible tells us how this happened. Psalm chapter 75, verses 6 and 7. Not far from the east, or for not from the east, nor from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. Verse 7. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and, raising, and lifting up another. So how did Mordecai get to where Mordecai got? How did he get promoted into this position? Friends, the Bible tells us that it was a supernatural promotion, that God caused him to be lifted up into this position. And Almighty God laid his hand on Mordecai's life and brushed aside every obstacle that laid in Mordecai's way, and that God brushed aside every hindrance and every human improbability, and when the dust cleared, it was Mordecai on top of the pile where God had intended Mordecai to be. You follow me? And that's how Mordecai got to this place. Now, this is true of us as followers of Jesus Christ as well. Namely, that when we yield our lives to God and say, God, my life belongs to you, friends, when we do that like Mordecai and Esther did, God sovereignly will promote us where he needs us to go and will supply us with what we need supplied and all the forces of this world, as many as can be mustered up against us, will not stand against what God has decided or declared to do. And the opposite of that is true as well. That if God decides not to promote us to some position in life, friends, all of our scheming and all of our manipulating and all of our human maneuvering will not get us to that position because God has determined that that's not for us as well. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because one of the greatest problems that I see amongst Christians and Christian lives is unsanctified ambition. Let me talk about that. I mean, ambition that sees life in strictly human terms, ambition that leaves God out of the equation. Friends, there's nothing wrong with ambition. Let me be clear about that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to better ourselves in life, to better our lot in life. There's nothing wrong with, with any of that, as long as we understand that God is the one who makes the final call on all of it. Unsanctified ambition is dangerous because it causes millions of Christians 
to sully their ethics and to compromise their Christian testimony and to sacrifice their families because they believe that those things are what is required in order to achieve success. Folks, the Bible says this is not true. And the example of Mordecai shows that this is not true. The Bible says God gets people where they go, not human maneuvering. And, not, and we can maintain our witness, and we can maintain our testimony, and we can be true to Christ. And wherever God has decided from the foundation of the world, friends, then that is where we are going. Amen? Amen? So let's recap. Why did Mordecai get to the promotion that he got to? Well, friends, he got it because Almighty God decided that he was going to give it to him. Now that raises a second question. And our second question, so that's how did he get there? We understand Almighty God did. Our second question is, on what basis then does God decide who God's going to promote? On what basis does God decide where he's going to promote us to? How does God figure that out? Uh, well, let's admit that on the eternal level, that God's decision of who he promotes and who he does not promote are completely at his discretion. You and I don't have anything to do with it. However, in the Bible, we do get a glimpse at the formula for who God is going to promote and who God is not going to promote and who he's going to exalt. And let me tell you what that formula is. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Toward the end of that verse, it says these words. God says, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who honor me, I will honor. You say, is that it? Is that the whole formula? Yep, that's it. Friends, God has committed himself in the eternal word of God that he will honor those people in this life who put him first, who keep him first in their life. That he will honor people here on this earth who are willing to go down in their work, who are willing to go down in their prestige and down in their position, if they have to, rather than deny Christ or disobey God's word. That's the formula. And we see that lived out in Mordecai's life. You know, we look through the Bible, we see people who are celebrated uh, all through the scriptures, and their stories are different in so many ways. But one of the things that is distinctly the same from one story to the next is that they honored God with their lives. Every one of them decided that they were going to honor God with their life, even if it took them down in their position. And then God stepped in and said, okay, now watch what I do. And so God honored them, in many cases, much farther up than they ever went down. Let me give you a few examples. How about Joseph? You remember the life of Joseph? Joseph said, no, I will not sin. And he turned down Potiphar's wife, even though he knew that he would probably be thrown in jail, even though he knew that he probably would be betrayed. But when it was all done, God brought Joseph out of jail and promoted him to the position of prime minister of the greatest empire in the world at that time, the land of Egypt. Why? Because those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. How about the life of Abraham? Abraham said, no, I won't go live down in Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though Sodom and Gomorrah is where all the riches of Canaan lie, I won't go there. And yet at the end of his life, Abraham became the richest man in all of that area of the world. How do we explain this? Because those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. 
How about our friend Daniel, who said, no, I will not bow down to the gods of Persia. I won't stop praying to God three times a day, even though they're going to throw me in the lion's den. But friends, what did God do? God promoted him to the second in command of the Persian Empire. And why did God do this? You know the answer. Because those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. The same goes for Mordecai, who said, no, I will not bow down to Haman. I won't deny God like that. Even though Haman is going to build a big gallows and he's going to hang me on it, I will not bow down to him. But by the time it was over, they hung Haman on the gallows that they had built for Mordecai, and Mordecai got the job that was Haman's as prime minister of the Persian Empire. Why? Say it with me. Because those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. You know, in modern times, when I think of this principle, there's a, I don't know if some of y'all are familiar with him or not, but a pastor by the name of W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell was a pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas for over 50 years. And uh, that church during his tenure there was one of the most strategic churches in all of America. He became the um, president of the Southern Baptist Convention twice and turned that convention around back in the early 50s and 60s from liberalism to conservatism. When he came to uh, candidate for the position at First Baptist Church of Dallas, um, some of y'all are familiar with pastors. It's been a little while since we've experienced that here. But when pastors come in to candidate, they preach a sermon. It's kind of like a preview sermon. People get to listen to it. They get to critique it, decide whether or not they think this is somebody that might be a good fit for the church. And so W.A. Criswell came in, and in his candidating sermon, he preached it with so much conviction and so much a desire for purity and holiness of life calling sin, sin, and truth, truth from the Bible, so much so that one of the deacons came up to him after the uh, service and said, sir, you can't preach that way here. If you preach that way here, the church will be empty. Um, and this is what I wanted to point out. As W.A. Criswell said, and I quote, this is his response, the word we preach from the pulpit ought to be like the word of God itself, like a fire and a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Chriswell said to the deacon, if you call me here to preach the word of God, I'm going to preach it just the way it is, end of quote. Now, let me tell you, God did not empty that church. In fact, that church would begin become, grow to become one of the great churches of, in the, through the 70s and 80s, uh, about 26,000 people attending every Sunday. Why? Because those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. In closing, I want to go from preaching to meddling. Can we do that a little bit? Because uh, there's a question that we need to ask, and the question is, where is God asking you, and where is God asking me to honor him in our lives? Where is God asking us to put him first, to take a stand for him in our lives with our friends, our relatives, our workplace, our school? And you know that by doing so, by taking a stand for Christ, by putting him first, it could hinder your chances at success in your workplace, in your business, promotion. And you know what your friends are going to tell you when you start asking these questions and thinking about making that, taking that stand. They're going to say, if you do that, you will be finished at this company. If you do that, you will lose your inheritance. If you do that, You'll lose a whole bunch of your friends. Don't worry, friends, about human odds. Do not worry about human wisdom. Don't listen to those folks because the word of God declares the Almighty God, all 
I love, I love that statement. Almighty. Sometimes we don't think about that. He is the omnipotent, immutable God of the universe. And he has declared in his word that those who honor me, I will honor. No matter what the world may try to throw at us and muster against us and try to unravel where God is leading us, friends, if God ordains it, it's going to happen. And that, friends, listening to those voices leaves out the most important factor in the equation, and that is Almighty God. Listen, God promises that those who honor me, I will honor. And God never lets down his end of the bargain. And so, as a follower of Christ, if you want to see God bless your life, and you want to see God honor your life, just remember those words, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor, says the Lord. And Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. Uh, Lord, if confidence needs to be imbued into us, may we find it in the truth and the promises of your holy word. God, may we be a people who go from this place and live differently because we've sat under the teaching of your word today. Holy Spirit, if there's some areas in our life where we need to step out and take a stand and honor you, might be something small, might be something big. Or may we have the confidence that your promises stand behind us and underneath of us and guard us. As we celebrate this time of communion now, remembering Christ, your broken body and your shed blood, we ask, Lord, that you would just give us hearts filled with gratitude that it is by your great sacrifice that any of these promises are even ours. Lord, we love you. We commit ourselves to you fresh and new. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.